Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Wise Athletes Podcast. I am Joe Lavelle with Dr. Glenn Winkle, and this is episode three of our podcast. The topic for our discussion today is a deeper dive into recovery from exercise, where we'll look specifically at how to recover faster. By recovery, we are talking about that set of physiological processes that occur during the time period between the end of an overload workout and the subsequent return to a recovered state when we are healed and strengthened and ready for the next workout. In episode two, we did a review of why recovery was so hard to get right and why it was particularly important to older athletes. We discussed how improving fitness or even just maintaining a high level of fitness is hard work because the body has to repair damage done during exercise that we have to do frequently to avoid detraining. And as we get older, our ability to heal becomes slower and our bodies become more fragile. Today, we'll hit four areas on recovering faster. How to need less recovery how to make your body good at recovery, what are some of the best recovery hacks to speed recovery, and what are some of the best recovery biometrics for monitoring recovery. Thanks for tuning in. Glenn and I hope you find this information helpful in your quest to become a wise athlete. Okay, welcome back, Glenn. And welcome back, Joe. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Got my work hat under ready, so I'm feeling good. Yeah, ready to go. Well, that's great. I'm jealous. Well, anyway, I understand you've put together detailed outline uh, to fulfill our promise to come back and hit the recovery topic in a bit more detail. Absolutely. Yes. We have some good ideas we're going to cover today. I think it'd be great ideas to help people understand the process of recovery. The first thing is that we're talking about how do we recover faster? How do we recover better? And really, I like to break it down to two separate issues. The first issue is, is the workout itself. How intense is the workout? How long is it? How much power are you putting out? You know, basically how hard is the workout? And that determines how much the recovery is. Obviously, if you go for a ride around the block, you don't need to recover from that. If you go out for a 200 mile ride of high intensity, you might need some time to recover from it. So just the nature of the workout establishes the basis for how much recovery you're going to need. But the other side is the approach I call the, is the actual, the nature of recovery approach. And there's two aspects of that. There's the pre-recovery, which means what kind of lifestyle do you have? Is that lifestyle actually promoting good health? And therefore, good health means fast recovery. And then after you finish a workout, what do you do immediately afterwards and the days and weeks following an intense workout to enable recovery? So we're going to cover it in those two ways. And we're going to start with uh, the part one, the, the, the workout mm-hmm. connection. Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, think about it this way. You have, to, you have to go back to your goals and ask the question, you know, what are, why am I training? What are the reasons behind why I'm doing what I'm doing? Am I trying to just be healthy? Just trying to ride the bike for general health? And that's a very good goal. And that will determine the intensity and the length of your workouts. On the other hand, maybe you're, you're thinking to the other extreme, I want to compete. I want to run a marathon. I want to be competitive. I want to go for a state championship, whatever it may be. It's something more competitive. So there's quite a variety from just want to ride a bike for health and want to be competitive, want to be the best at what you do. And so you have to kind of define in the beginning where you're headed and therefore plan and structure your workouts appropriately so you know what goals you're going to achieve because that determines, therefore, what type of recovery you're going to need. It would also seem to me, in fact, what I thought you were going to talk about was the whole idea of when you're starting your workout or deciding whether to start your workouts, you're listening to your body. And if you're not fully up to par, maybe you would uh, downgrade the intensity of the workout or maybe skip the workout altogether. Yeah, that's a given, actually. But a lot of people don't think about it that way. A lot of folks, what they'll do is they'll maybe they'll find a workout plan on the internet, in the internet online. And they'll say, OK, on, on Monday, I got to do this. And Tuesday, I got to do that. And Wednesday, I do this. And what happens, let's say, um, you know, you, you have a really intense workout schedule for a Tuesday. And you kind of just don't feel right. You know, I, I don't know. I had a hard day at work. And I don't feel right today. And but my workout said I got to do this. My coach said I got to work this thing. So I go out and do it. And that will necessarily probably put you in a hole. So I, I when I work with athletes a lot, I'll, I'll kind of evaluate them before I do a training workout. And I say, well, how are you doing today? And they're like, oh, man, you know, I had a hard day at work. And, you know, the kids and I aren't getting along. And the wife and I aren't getting along. And I'm like, oh, and like, I say, you know, based upon what you've told me so far, let's take this down a notch because – you know, it's not just the workout itself. It's what your lifestyle is that's causing additional stress and things that's going to make it harder to recover. So I might take it down from, let's say, a, a four or five workout down to a three, four workout because your body's not going to recover well if I take it too hard. So that's kind of looking at the big approach. It's like, you know, you can't do an intense workout on a day we had a really bad day. 
because that's just too much stress for the system. Two things to do then related to the workout is, it was you're planning your workouts, you're planning them around recovery, but sometimes you're having to react to how you have actually recovered to modify your workouts. Exactly. And I think it's also true that a lot of times we have a, a set goal to hit a certain target by a certain time. And unfortunately, you know, life gets in the way. I mean, family gets in the way, job gets in the way, um, just your health gets in the way, um, recovery gets in the way sometimes. And what ends up happening is that you find when you when the time comes to that, that target that you're way behind in your training program. So it's very common. So I always encourage people to set a goal, but then give yourself more time to reach that goal because it's going to take longer than you think because something's going to get right, in the way. Yeah. Life, for example, get in the way. Nothing goes perfectly, yeah. right? Okay. So I guess I would summarize that the idea of how to recover faster and one of the ways is to not need so much recovery. And you do that by not overdoing it, whether it's by design or by reacting to a, a present situation. Mm -hmm. You know, you haven't slept well or, you, or maybe you drank last night or you're under higher stress than normal. And I wonder, I was thinking about this before we started talking and I wonder what your reaction would be. You know, when people are thinking about, oh, you know, sometimes I just push through if I'm tired or, you know, when I have leg pain, muscle pain because of my last set of workouts, but I've got a hard workout to do. I just go ahead and do it and suffer with it because I think that that'll make me stronger. And I always think of it like this. I say, you know, if your knee was really hurting, would you push through the pain to get through your workout? And I don't know if, if physiologically those are in any way connected, but of course I would never, ever push through a joint pain. But maybe it's no different to think through a pushing through fatigue or muscle pain. What do you think? Well, let's just go back and ask the question, what is pain? I mean, pain is your body telling you something. It's your body speaking to you. And when you feel pain, it means something's not right. That's what your body's telling you. I mean, so when you feel pain in the knee, pain in the back, pain someplace, my goal has always been, what's the source of the pain? Why am I hurting? You know, is it because I've got a pinched nerve? Is it because I got a sore muscle? Is it because I have a, a, a damaged ligament or a damaged joint in some way? I have, you know, um, osteoarthritis and it's causing injury to the joint. I mean, people talk about pushing through the pain and maybe in a competition where, you know, the metal matters more than your body, basically, um, you might push through the pain. I've done that before in races. The pain of the fact that I'm suffering doing a long race at altitude, for example, might cause a lot of pain, muscle pain, everything, joint pain, but that's competition. So you push yourself hard in competition, but in a training ride, when you're trying to achieve a particular goal, if you're feeling pain and you, you know, it's not going to get better by riding. You're not going to be able to push through the pain if it's actual injury. You're going to create more injury. If you have osteoarthritis, um, what's going to happen is that you're going to cause more damage, more inflammation, which is going to cause more damage, more inflammation down the road. And the net result is you're going to get worse. And eventually you won't, may not be able to ride at all. So. I don't agree with the idea of pushing through pain unless it's a competition and you're making a sacrifice and literally a sacrifice to achieve the goal of winning a competition or doing well in a competition. After which you're going to have to have an extended recovery and lose some fitness, but maybe at that point with a medal around your neck, that's an okay thing. Yeah, it depends. Depends on your own philosophy about that. What's next? But let's talk about the actual and the nature of the recovery approach from the perspective of pre-recovery or you know pre-workout and post-workout. So in the pre-workout okay. side, it's really very simple stuff, all of which we already know. We may not choose to do it, but we do know these things. And it's basically the basics of a healthy body or what I call healthy living. There's different topics, of course. There's like nutrition. There's the do's and the don'ts. You've got environmental factors, like the environment you live in, whether it's noise or heavy metals or air pollution or endocrine disruption or pure, not good water. There's the issue about sleep how many hours a day and how, what's the quality of your sleep. And then there's the, the issue of environment and stress. Um, what's your work environment like? What's your home environment like? Um, because stress compromises the ability of the immune system to function effectively. And stress also compromises the ability of the body with the ability to deal with stress, kind of like a PTSD approach. And so I like to cover some of these things in, in detail um, to go into the idea of like, what are we talking about when we talk about health and cover each one in turn? Yeah, let's do that. There's some things about what a healthy diet 
comprises and some other things related to food that is important for athletes that I think is true regardless of what diet people want to follow. Is that true? Well, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest. There are many, many different types of diets out there and types of lifestyles from those who are vegetarian, those who are meat eaters, those who who swear off all kinds of animal products for various reasons. It's possible to be an athlete no matter what your diet is. Let's be honest. Your body is very adaptable, adaptable to the foods that are in its environment. And so, you know, if you're trying to just train to become a healthier person and you're, you've chosen a certain type of a lifestyle and a certain type of diet, that's going to work for you. It just comes down to the, I would call it the junk food. It, it, you know, when you look at the American diet, it's so high in sugar. It's so high in fats. It's so high in just food that's not good for us. It's just junk. And that's not going to promote a healthy body or a healthy immune system. The inflammation diet. Oh, eh? gosh, yes. Highly inflammatory. Yeah. And you're seeing that actually right now um, with this coronavirus thing. The inflammation that takes place, you look at the people that really get that post-inflammatory response. They're those who are overweight and those kids who are eating really unhealthy diets. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a downside of this whole thing. I mean, just eating healthy food, you know, um, low in sugar, high in complex carbohydrates. You know, you get your protein from whether it's meat sources or whether it's vegetable sources. You're getting adequate source of protein, adequate sources of fat and good fats. I mean, basically, good nutrition promotes a healthy body, healthy cardiovascular system, healthy immune system. This means that when you stress your body and exercise, you'll get a faster recovery and better recovery. Could we summarize and say, look, for your diet, you want to emphasize real food and, and more and packaged processed food less. If it comes in a wrapper, if you can read the ingredients on the wrapper, then that is not as good as some real piece of food that looked like food to your grandmother. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's simple. I mean, I think people out there know what's healthy. It's just they choose not to eat the food. I mean, I know it's healthy food. I'll, I'll grab unhealthy food now and then, but I know it's not good for me. But I, at least I know. And being aware of this, if you're really training for a competition, I throw off all the bad stuff. Okay, so that's, yeah. I think, just basic. It's just common sense, you know. Right. I, I had that question, was there any good packaged food? And I said, you know, I don't know. I'm not out there on a hunt for good packaged food. Uh, there's plenty of easy to find and not that terribly expensive real food. Underneath eat real food is eat plenty of vegetables and fruits. I would agree with that. Absolutely. Fruits and vegetables. Because fruits and vegetables, I mean, they have protein, not a lot. They have lots of vitamins, lots of minerals. They have lots of soluble fiber, which is very important for digestion and also for your microbiome and the GI. Um, Vegetables, there's a wide variety of them. I would suggest if you don't go organic that you do wash them clearly so they're free of pesticides, for example. Um, you know, you can't go wrong with a, with, a, with a diet. In fact, as a T. Colin Campbell wrote the book, um, The China Study, I think it was, and he showed very clearly what he's called a plant-based carbohydrate diet was the best diet of all, absolutely the best. And that's one of the largest dietary studies ever done in history was the China Study. So this is one of the top signs of the world with no um, attachments to any kind of a lobby group, for example, who's saying plant-based carbohydrates, that's your best source of food. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my grave believing that my mom and my mom's mom was right all along. And they always said, eat your fruit and vegetables. Mm-hmm. I say that all the and time, <laughs> eat your fruits and vegetables. And I always hated it and I never wanted to do it. And the older I got, the more I said, uh, I'm going to do this because it's good for me. And, and, the, and also, I'll say, if you will stop eating added sugars, then vegetables that otherwise would taste good unless you put something on them, they start tasting very good all by themselves. When you get back to a normal set of taste buds. I'm not sure what it is, but when I've stopped eating added sweets, the normal taste of food is good. That's a very, very good point. I would have to say that if you could take added sugars out of your diet, just that one thing alone, and that's including food you buy that has food sugar added to it, but take all the sugars, all these simple sugars out of your diet, it's going to make you a far, far healthier person. And uh, if, if being an athlete is your goal, drop the sugar. It's that simple. When I talk about sugars, there's simple sugars and complex sugars. Most of your sugars, it's like a, a six-carbon sugar. 
But there's another form of sugar we consume, which is even simpler than six carbon sugar, it's the three carbon sugar, known as alcohol. And a lot of folks, they love their beer, they love their wine and everything else. And I will just say two things about this. I'm not saying don't drink wine, and I'm not saying don't drink beer. I am saying that it will compromise your ability to be a really good athlete because of two things. The, the liver interprets alcohol as a toxin. And so the liver basically takes the alcohol and tries to break it down as quick as possible because it is a toxin. It does kill brain cells. It does cause issues down the body. It damages or affects the microbiome. While I don't tell people not to drink, I say sparingly or in low quantity. When preparing for a competition, definitely take it out of your diet for a time at least. Let's see. One more thing that I, I thought we should talk about. Otherwise, people will just send us hate mail <laughs> uh, regarding the diet because we're talking about recovery yeah. after all. And we're talking about people who exercise frequently and who want to be stronger. And, um, and the topic is protein. It's a controversial topic. Mm -hmm. The general consensus is you don't need much. Uh, if you're a bodybuilder, well, you need a lot. If I'm exercising very hard, I might eat 200 grams a day. Even on days when I'm not exercising, I'll eat 100 grams of protein. Now, maybe that's too much. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting. Well, there's two issues with protein. The first is source of protein. And the second thing is how much protein. And so I'm going to go back to T. Colin Campbell's book, The China Study, because I think, like I said, it's one of the best scientific studies done on the human population. And it was ironic that right before I um, read his book, I was working through some of the protein hypotheses about high protein type diets. It was kind of funny because I had just gotten the goats so I'd have milk protein and I had the chicken, so I'd have egg protein. So I was getting my protein from eggs, goat milk, and naturally chickens from the backyard. And in T. Colin Campbell's book, he basically said in the book, animal proteins should not be more than 12% of your diet, period, end of story. Because anytime animal protein exceeded 12 gram, I mean 12% uh, of your diet, the incidence of cancer went up dramatically. And so, you know, here I was like, gosh, I've just set myself on a course of getting a high protein diet. And now one of the best authorities in the field is saying, no, 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 no more than 12%. Now that's been some years from now. I have cut back now to about 10 or 12% of my diet is protein now. So that's a standard I'm, I'm working through because it has been shown clearly in the research that it does reduce the risk of cancer. But remember I said it's animal protein. So cheese, eggs, milk, um, you know, meats, things of that sort. That doesn't include vegetable proteins. So you can get uh, more. Percentage. Where's fish fall in it that? It should be a meat, <laughs> essentially. Uh, okay. Animal proteins. Well, I'm, I'm doomed. <laughs> uh, okay. Again, related to diet and less, last little bit is less about the kind of food to eat and more about how much food to eat. So I'm a bigger guy. I, I bet I could lose five pounds, um, I've been working on that five pounds for about 10 years. So I'm always watching my weight. I'm always trying, and I'm, of course, I'm using athletics exercise to manage my calorie intake versus burn. Uh, and it's a big deal, right? You know, a thousand calorie workout in a 2000 calorie diet day. Uh, and of course, I've heard lots of people talk about how they exercise hard so they can eat whatever they want. Yes. Well, I, I used to be that, be that way myself. In fact, I used to say, and it's, it's quite true actually, that cyclists are fat people that exercise a lot. Think about that. Because we work out so much that it's possible to lose weight and eat whatever you want. And a lot of folks do that. And when they stop exercising or stop cycling, they put on lots of weight. Okay. And having said all of that, I want to talk about something different. Okay. Some people are overweight and they want to lose weight. That's their main thing. They're not trying to race a bike or you know, go run a marathon or, you know, maybe someday what they want to do now is, is get started in some exercise program. And their doctors told them, you know, Hey, you got to lose 40 pounds, man. You know, look at, look, you know, look at this marker, look at that, you know, you're in trouble, lose the weight. They're trying to control their diet probably. And they're trying to up their calorie burn, get their metabolism going better. They're in this process of losing weight. That's stressful on the body. So this is an added stress in the context of recovery that other people don't have. So the person who's losing weight while they're getting more fit, they've got to bake that into their thinking around how 
deep can I go in my workouts yeah. well, or that, before I can recover? Well, that's a really good point you made, Joe, because you see, a lot of folks don't realize that in order to burn fat, you need aerobic with oxygen type exercise. And a high intensity workout is actually something more anaerobic without oxygen. And so a high intensity workout that really works the muscles hard may not be the right type of exercise in order to lose weight. And then there's another component. You talk about the stress side of this, and this is really key. And I get a lot of people that come to me who basically have been counseled by their doctor. You need to lose, you know, 20, 30, 40 pounds to get your body in shape. You're at risk for a heart attack or a stroke, whatever it may be. And they come to me and say, what do I do? And so that gets down to the question of, well, what form of exercise are you going to choose? What form of exercise are you going to actually enjoy doing? You know, a lot of people, I mean, you think about this, how many people have bought exercise machines that become clothes racks over the time? Even I've done this myself because I don't really enjoy those types of exercise on a trainer and that's, you know, in a, in a room. In fact, it wasn't until I got involved in Zwift on the bicycle that they actually started using the trainer. Otherwise, they just sat there and just, if I needed a trainer, it was there, but I never used them really until this last year. So I tell people all the time that number one, you must enjoy what you're doing as an exercise program to lose weight, otherwise you will not do it. And then that takes the stress away because it's not a negative experience, it's now a positive experience. And we want people who you know are coming to this podcast saying, hey, I wanna do something to get to lose weight or be healthier. Um, and, and Glenn's saying, oh, well, find something you enjoy doing. It might be ballroom dancing. It might be walking with friends. It might be you know pickleball. It might be something they just love doing with people, maybe a social event. And that makes it easier. It reduces the stress. It's more fun. You have a better time at it and you continue doing it. And it become a lifestyle, not just something to lose weight. Let's see. You talked about de-stressing and obviously going and doing something that is really enjoyable. That's great. There's also some hacks that fall into the category of meditation. There's simple things that people can do, right? You know, like breathing techniques that can sort of settle the body down. What do you think of these things? I think they're fantastic. I mean, I mean, I know I'm, I'm a great example of that. I just go, 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 go all day long. I don't think about taking a breather. But, you know, I noticed that I do have to have downtime to establish good recovery, essentially to activate my parasympathetic nervous system. That model I used in a previous podcast of coming home, getting in the easy chair, kicking back up, putting your feet up and just resting and letting your body relax. I have a massage chair. I get back from a ride, I'll pop in that massage chair, kick back and just go, ah, it feels good. And I'm now activating my parasympathetic system. I'm relaxing my body. I'm taking the stress down the level. And there's many ways, whether it be meditation, whether it be prayer, whether it be quiet times, different ways to kind of de-stress and kind of detach from the environment, detach from the news, detach from the coronavirus, detach from the people in your life that are, dri that are driving you crazy and just find a relaxing place, you know, your man cave, so to speak, and, you know, relax, turn down the intensity of life and let your body recover, activate the parasympathetic. Making a point to de-stress regularly. Absolutely. Absolutely part of a lifestyle, yeah. And the, the sleep topic, uh, we haven't really touched on it very much, and I'm afraid that there's just too much to get into it. Uh, but I, I wanted to just mention, if you need an alarm clock to wake up in the morning, you're not getting enough sleep. That will make, that'll be the biggest thing anybody can do to make not just their recovery from exercise better, but the quality of their life better. But there's two aspects to this. The first part is the amount of time in sleep, and the second part is the quality of your sleep. It's been shown through sleep studies that if your quality is very good, you can actually sleep less. And we can even take a, a, a deep dive in the podcast and talk about the different types of sleep and how to analyze your sleep and things you can use to, to decide how your sleep is right now. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of sleep studies out there, but there, with all the tools we have today with, with the phones and with the bed pads and things, there's so many tools available to, to define the kind of sleep. It tells you what level you've been yeah. in for how long. So we can do that well, let's plan, down the road. Let's plan to come back and, and hit on that one. I think that that's a humongoid topic that people, you know, more and more I think people understand it. But I can, I can still hear myself saying that sleep was a waste of time and, um, you know, I only need five hours sleep and, uh, oh, I'll catch up on the weekends. And uh, I was... Totally, absolutely wrong. I admit it. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right. Uh, the last thing I, that I wanted to mention, which doesn't fall into the lifestyle 
but it is a how to make your body better at recovery. And it's this old school thing of why did their coach want you to do these long, slow miles year after year after year? And uh, I wonder if you could take us through the advantages of having a very robust cardiovascular system. Oh, that's a simple one. It's almost it's almost like so simple that a lot of folks like me just don't even think about it anymore. But basically, I mean, I was always told back in the old days, it was your base training miles. You know, go out and do, you know, 50, 80, 100 mile rides, just develop. And this is what that really is, is actually, because, you know, you hear these things about, you know, 20, 30 minutes a day of exercise, all you need. But, you know, when you're putting in like a 100 mile ride, you're looking at four or five hours of exercise. This is way over the top of what they're recommending for just basic exercise. And the average person doesn't have four or five hours to devote to basic training. So they try to put everything in a tight little window of 20 or 30 minutes a day. That's all you need. Just hop in this machine, 20, 30 minutes a day, and you're good to go. I don't agree with that at all. I think that workouts must be longer to a better benefit. And if we talked about early in the podcast, we talked about aerobic training. And so that well, LSD is a call, long, steady miles. So at a very low level, maybe a level one or a level two, you're going to be riding for 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, 100 miles. The idea being is developing a very robust cardiovascular response. You have better blood flow about the body and better immune system, but you're not totally over-stressing the body with high intensity. So it's a very low and very low ride. In fact, it would be considered a recovery ride of sorts, especially depending on the intensity level. But if you're riding at just like below tempo at nice recovery, you could ride for like several hours that way. And the idea is, is just work on the heart, you know, mildly elevated heart rate, um, not extraneous. It doesn't need a lot of recovery time unless it's over a certain window. Maybe after three or four hours, you might need recovery because it's too long. It's endurance. But um, just... We call them LSD, long, steady miles. That's all it was. Glenn, on your list, was there anything else in sort of your pre-exercise? Yes, there were. This is the one that people don't even think about, but it's really critical. But it's what I call environmental factors. Now, this is key because one example is that if you live in the city, you're going to have more air pollution in the city, more dust, more diesel fumes, more automobile gas. These things are going to affect your immune system. It's been well shown. It can affect your respiratory issues, asthma, things of that sort. So if you're going to be training, if you get outside the city into a, like a less car environment out in the country someplace, that's going to make a difference. Another good example, and this is a huge example I got involved in, and uh, I can think of my sister with a great example of this. They love sushi, just have it all the time. And she developed a mercury overload system because of all the oh, sushi boy. she was eating. So things like that, there's things we don't even think about in the foods we eat. There might be extra mercury in the certain types of fish. Um, what I call the heavy metals. In fact, there are people that are taking food supplements like fish oils, but they don't realize the fish oils come from things that live at the bottom of the ocean that have high levels of heavy metals and they haven't been tested for that. Um, you know, the, the air pollution issues. A big one I talked about a lot is what's called endocrine disruption. There are factors in the foods we eat. There are factors in the plastics that we use in our environment, in our toothpaste, in our hairsprays, in our deodorants that contain endocrine disruptors. These are things that disrupt the endocrine system and they affect the recovery process. They dramatically affect the immune system. They're in all kinds of things we consume every day. The plastics lining cans, the plastic we put in the microwave, the plastics that our food comes in. And so these are called endocrine disruptors because they disrupt the immune system. There are no plastics in my house anymore. There's no food, but it comes in plastic, I take it out of plastics because I realize there's a toxic risk involved. And so if you want to be a healthy athlete, you got to think about these environmental issues. When I gave this talk at, uh, at the Colorado Springs School over here, I had kids come up to me many years later telling me, oh, yeah, because of your talk, we've eliminated all the plastic from our, from our house. I'm like, good. That's the way it should be. And I taught for like 10 years. I taught these field, the, um, oh, I don't know, hundreds of seminars on plastics and the risk of plastics in the, in the Bay Area 20 years ago um, before it was even well known. And now it's becoming more common, understood. Well, that's very scary. Thank you for that. Uh, was there anything else in the uh, essentially lifestyle and how to make your body better at recovery? No, really, it's just, it's just the healthy living side. A healthy body makes a healthy athlete, which allows them to recover faster. It's, it's really simple, but you got to think about okay. how do I be healthy? How do I be a healthy body? And it comes down to the food, sleeping properly, good environment you live in, whether it be low stress, and uh, that keeps your body healthy. So let's move on to the next set of things, which everybody thinks of when they think of recovery that are the extra things that you can do. And, and it may be that these things don't even make most of the difference, but you know, they can help. So what are they? What, what are the other things people can do after a workout 
to try to accelerate the recovery? I call this the post-recovery tools. And so, I mean, you think about this, if you just come back from, let's say, a two-hour ride that's of moderate to high intensity and your body's tired, um, what's the first step of the recovery process, right? What's the first thing you can do? Well, I like to think of it this way, I don't always, don't often do it, is stretching. The idea of stretching is that I'm going to allow, because my muscles are tight, my back is tight, my legs might be tight, you know, I want to kind of just stretch out some of the muscles so they don't tighten up because they are kind of tight from the ride itself. So stretching is, I think, is a key part of the recovery process post-exercise. I usually spend a lot of time before an event stretching, but I often neglect the stretching on the, on the, on the other side, the flip side. But when I do the stretches after a workout, I'm much, much better off the next day. So I have to say that it's something that I myself personally neglect sometimes. I'm just busy. I, I got my two-hour workout in. I got to go to something else. And I just completely ignore the stretching. So I think that that's something that needs to be done. And that the stretching, I use rollers and I use straps and things. The idea being that when you stretch, you loosen the muscle up. You allow blood flow into the muscle, which allows it to heal faster, pull out all the toxins and the waste products. So stretching is really part of that circulatory thing and getting the muscles moving, getting them stretched out so they can help recover faster. What else can people do? Another one, like I said, I have a massage chair. Let's say it were possible to have a massage scheduled right after your workout. That'd be great. In fact, massage and stretching are very similar in a lot of ways. The therapist would kind of work out the thighs and work out the calves and work out the feet and back and shoulder and everything else. So again, you know, if you don't have massage therapists, your wife's not a massage therapist, you know, I have one of those massage chairs. I just get my massage chair and kick back and let it do its magic, you know, and lower body massage, upper body massage, you know, a little bit of heat action, sure. tip my legs up in the air. So essentially, that's a new tool that I've, I've developed that I just love. I'm in that chair probably more than an hour a day just getting my massages. So I've had one, and if you got a spare 2500 bucks, do it because it is a life changer. Um, but, you know, the foam rolling, mm-hmm. that's kind of a massaging activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't care whether that works or not, that feels so good. I do that all the time. My whole body, I'm doing that thing. Um, I use uh, like a handheld massage mm-hmm. uh, device. Uh, percussion, I guess, is is maybe the word that you, you hear used about that. But I, I mean, I, I'm using that on my ligaments. And I'm using it on my muscles. And I'm, I'm using it on all the attachment points that seem to get sore. Mm-hmm. And it just solves so much. Um, lacrosse ball. Yeah. That is the most painful thing in my life on a regular basis. Uh, but wow, I could not live without that lacrosse ball working out the kinks in my body uh, that are just, and I don't know whether it's age or it's just, you know, injuries that have generated scar tissue or whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, these spots that I have to use took me a long time to find them. I'd have these pains and nothing would seem to get at them. And I finally, using that lacrosse ball, found them. You know, that's a uh, good point. I think we should really address, especially as an older athlete, as an older, wiser athlete. There's something that's been coming out these days about what's called the fascia. Have you heard about this? There's the ligaments, sure. there's the tendons, but there's also the fascia, which basically connects you from the head to toe. And yeah. what they've been finding is that in older athletes, the fascia starts to cross-link. It becomes less flexible. And so stretching becomes uh, more critical. Now, the irony of all this is that um, when I was younger and I would do stretching, they remember they used to tell you, don't bounce. They say, don't yes. bounce, just stretch, don't bounce. Oh, that hurts. I like bounces because I wanted to get the stretch. Now, what they're saying is that you want to bounce and stretch the fascia to bounce it because you want to make it more flexible. So they recommend bouncing and not just stretching because stretching can cause tears. So it's ironic that, you know, over time, the wisdom more dynamic, mm-hmm. more dynamic rather than static. You're saying yeah, well, one of the interesting aspects of this was that on the fascia was that when they look at the cheetah, who's one of the fastest animals out there, they look at the actual muscles that the cheetah has and says, based upon the muscle and the amount of power those muscles put out, they can't go as fast as they can go. But they go 70, 80 miles an hour. That's how fast they run. So they did a little analysis and said the reason why the cheetah goes so fast, it uses what's called fascial stretch. So essentially, the fastest stretches, and then when it rebounds from the stretch, it applies extra power so the cheetah can go as fast as it does. And so for the older athlete, what I've discovered is that as I get older, my fascia gets tighter and tighter, and I have to stretch the fascia out. 
stretch that and get it, keep it stretched. Otherwise it will cross link and it won't stretch. And that's why you see people that are all hunched over and all crippled because they're not, they're, they're all so tight. And the older I get, the more I must stretch, the more I must work the muscles, the more I must do the things. That's a really wise approach to becoming an older, a healthier, older athlete. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that's consistent with my experience as well. I, I have a set of stretches that I do every morning, whether I feel like I need a stretch or not. I just get out, you know, I get out of bed and I do these stretches and they just keep me from having a, a set of pains in my back or my hips or wherever, I mean, my neck that I would otherwise have. And I, I've done these stretches now long enough that I, I forget that actually I have these chronic problems. And it has happened in the past that I would sort of get out of the habit of doing my stretches and bingo, I've got these problems again. And it's like, oh, holy cow, I, for, I haven't been doing my stretches. So I don't forget anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were going to talk about bath. Oh, yeah. The hot bath, the cold bath. <laughs> I, I will tell you an interesting story um, because when I was at nationals, these were speed skating nationals a couple of years back, um, speed skating requires, I would call awkward is the word I would use, awkward body positions while on the ice at high pressure, high load. A little different from cycling a lot of ways. And I found that my body was so sore from speed skating that um, I always made sure that the hotel I was staying at at Nationals had a hot tub. And I would literally be in the hot tub for 30 minutes or more just so I could do my stretches. And for like two hours after the hot tub, I had no pain. I could run up and down the stairs, no pain. And then eventually it would all wear off after about two hours again. And so, um, you know, I mean, I don't have a hot tub at my house, but, you know, based upon how I could make the pain go away so quickly, and how I could stress so effectively, I thought it's maybe time to put a hot tub in. Well, there's even impacts on your immune system and uh, impacts on longevity mm -hmm. related to, you know, heat shock proteins mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the whole Wim Hof, the ice bath dude. People are true believers in the benefits of, of a cold bath. And I'll admit that I take, I start my showers in the morning ice cold. Uh -huh. What it does is it gets me more prepared more used to being uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm definitely and, the opposite. You know, I can tell you that. I sort of I'm nice not going to freeze to death. <laughs> there you go. I'm not going to, you know, you, you just learn you're not going to freeze to death. Mm -hmm. You're not going to die. It only feels like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll definitely wake you up in the morning. That's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. So what else? What are some of the other techniques that people use successfully to recover faster? A lot of people use what are called compression socks, compression clothing. The idea being that taking the blood flow from the surface and pushing it into the, deeper to the muscles. Again, if you think about it as a concept, the idea is to increase blood flow post-exercise. So whether it be the hot bath or the cold bath, whether it be the compression clothing, whether it be the massage, you're still getting blood flow, getting the blood to move as much as possible. I mean, if you, let's say you just did a long ride and all the blood pools to your legs and you're sitting at a dinner table, for example, and all the blood's pooling in your legs, that's not good for recovery. The blood's not moving, it's just sitting there. So like getting your legs up in the air, that's the idea of the massage chair, any kind of reclining chair, getting your feet above your heart so the blood flows out of your legs. I mean, I can think of many times after a race, you see people, athletes, sitting on the, like laying on the floor with the feet up in the air, let the blood drain from the legs because sure. the blood will pool in the legs otherwise, and you want the blood to flow out of the legs to get to the heart to circulate the body. So that's all part of the recovery process. Now, I forgot about one that's so important and probably the first thing you want to do when you get back from a ride, you know what that is? Drink water. Rehydrate. There you go. Because often your body won't really know how much water it needs to have. So it's very important to rehydrate after a workout. Even, even more than calories, get some water in the system. You know, I have always heard that if it's possible, if you can take a nap after a hard workout, mm -hmm. you've really accelerated your recovery. Mm -hmm. And let's, this is a good thing you mentioned that too, because, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of times people tell us that, oh yeah, just 30 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day is all I need for exercise. If we're talking about extended time of exercise, say for example, uh, an hour exercise, and it's fairly intense, you have to allow time before the exercise for the warm up period and time after the exercise for the warm down and post recovery periods. So it's very important if, if your time is tight, you have to plan your schedule so that you can actually put all these things in. For example, like today, I get off my bike and I'm down here doing the podcast. There wasn't time to stress, there wasn't time to do my normal routine. So you wanna put time in your day to allow both before the exercise itself and post exercise to allow time to have these recovery things, whether it be even after a ride, having an hour to take a nap after a ride to help the recovery process, something like that. Very, very important. And a lot of folks I know in our busy society and our high stress lifestyle and where time is a factor, 
or we come home and the kids are want this and the wife wants that and we got to have this and that be someplace else. I mean, life is stressful in and of itself. And so you may get your workout in, but you may not get the things you want to do, the tools for recovery. So you want to, if you can plan that in, is block out time post-recovery and say, I need to do my stretch right now, you know. Okay, Glenn. So we've talked about things to do before your exercise so that you're good at recovery and then things you can do after exercise to help accelerate your recovery or at least not get in the way of it. How do people know where they stand in recovery? Yeah, that's a good point. I call these the metrics to measure recovery. I mean, one of the most simple tools that's widely available now is a heart rate monitor. And I would highly recommend this for several reasons, because on the one hand, it can measure your workout and it can also measure your recovery. Because basically, you know that as you work out, your heart rate goes up. And back in the old days, that was our primary indicator. In fact, when heart rate monitors first came out and they were readily available, that was one of the best tools a coach had to measure the intensity of a workout. Nowadays, we have power meters and other ways, but for the most part, that was the best tool. And it still is a great tool. I would recommend if you're going to be serious about your sport, get a simple heart rate monitor. And there's many types available these days and they're not that expensive either. So as you exercise, heart rate goes up. Now, what happens that when you wake up in the morning, your heart has what's called a resting heart rate. And this is the part that teaches you about recovery, because as you get fitter and fitter, your resting heart rate goes down. And so once you know where your baseline is, maybe it's 35 beats or 40 beats per minute when you wake up in the morning, if it's elevated over its normal baseline, it suggests that you're not fully recovered. So I noticed this many times is that if I do hard workouts back to back or race days back to back, my heart rate's not as low as it normally is. It's elevated by five or 10 beats when I wake up in the morning. So I know my recovery is not good. And if I have a big event coming up, a very important event, and I'm not fully recovered, I will not perform as well as I would have had it recovered. So it's important to understand that your resting heart rate is a very simple way of measuring how well you've recovered from a workout. That's very interesting. And uh, I want to go back to something you just said, which was if your your resting heart rate might be 35 to 40. Uh, and I think that everybody listening to this just fell on the floor. <laughs> uh, you know, we're talking about Lance Armstrong or something here. Uh, I think the average resting heart rate for uh, older man is who's healthy has got to be at least 60. This is true. So that's a really good point. Um, so yeah, I hope people didn't fall on the floor. I can pick themselves back up again and say, okay, here's the deal. You know, and many yeah. folks are in the 60s, yeah. you know, like low to mid 60s. So why does it get lower? It gets more efficient. That's all it is. It's really simple. I mean, think about it this way. If, if you're not in good shape, you know, you don't do a lot of exercise, you have a high stress job, your body has to work harder to basically get oxygen to your muscles and to your body. So it's going to be a higher heart rate. Even at rest, it's going to work pretty hard. But as you get, as you get, as you work the system, you work the cardiovascular system, you become more efficient at getting oxygen out of the air, you become more efficient at delivering the, the oxygen to the muscles, your body becomes much more efficient at doing its job, the heart doesn't have to work quite as hard. I mean, it literally can do the job with fewer beats, essentially is what it's doing. So let's say my heart rate, my resting is at 40 beats per minute, and another person's heart rate is 60 beats per minute, and assuming they're moving the same amount of blood per beat on average, um, odds are, I'm probably moving more blood in each four by 40 beats than a person is moving their 60 beats because my body is more efficient at delivering oxygen to my muscles. So that's all it really is, is that as you get more fit, as you get a stronger and more efficient cardiovascular system, your heart rate will lower because it doesn't need to work as hard. Well, I did think that there was an element of the heart becoming stronger and larger and pumping more blood per beat. Is there any truth to that? Well, they talk about the athlete's heart and that the athlete has a much bigger heart. And um, they sometimes look at that almost as a medical condition, so to speak, in a large heart, they call it. But if you look at it, what it really is, is that the heart's a muscle. And if you work the muscle, it gets bigger. Like muscles, you know, whether, whether it be your biceps or your quads, they're gonna get bigger with exercise. And so the term they use is hypertrophy. So the actual wall of the left ventricle, which pumps blood to the rest of the body, gets thicker. It thickens because it's, it's stronger. It's getting you know stronger at pumping blood. So it really does. So um, right. my heart is huge. I mean, it really is. It's quite large. On an X-ray, it's it's quite massive. Um, is that genetic, or is that from the years of exercise I've been doing? Don't really know. I just know I have a big heart, so I have a lower heart rate as a rule. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Well, from a fitness point of view, you can imagine how that could be an advantage if you're sort of steady, not doing any work other than just your base metabolic rate is only 40, but you've got the same max heart rate as the guy you're racing against Mm -hmm. and his minimum is 50. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got those extra 10 beats to play with. That's right. We call that, um, well, there's maximal effort and there's submaximal effort. So if if me and someone else are are racing side by side and my heart rate's going lower than his heart rate and I have more range to work with and I'm running submax and he's at maximal, you know, that's happened to me in races many times. I look over, what's your heart rate? 180 and I'm running at 150. It's like, hmm, I got uh, 30 beats more extra room to go. Yeah, it's good for you. Yeah, (laughs) bad for them. (laughs) Right. Okay, so go back to the how is resting heart rate an indicator of recovery? We're not talking about it's a reco- an indicator of fitness. We may come back to that on another day mm-hmm. to talk about how getting your heart rate lower is a good thing. But of course, it takes a lot of time. It's maybe a part of this increased vascularity uh, and a stronger cardiovascular system that we referred to earlier. Uh, but as far as like on a day-to-day basis, looking at your resting heart rate and using that to help you assess where you are in your recovery well, this is going to take some time, and let's be honest about this. And it also requires um, developing habits because many times people jump out of bed in the morning and they forget to take their heart rate. I've done it many times myself. So you have to wake up, take your heart rate, put your heart rate monitor on. My watch tells me right now at number-wise. So um, use the tools that are available and then record, write down a piece of paper what your heart rate was. And so you'll start seeing a pattern. Now let's say it's – okay, I'm going to have to give a higher number for those people that are going to be freaked out by my low numbers. Let's say it's 55. And so every day you get up at 55. So you're establishing a baseline for the heart rate at 55. So let's say you go out and do a really hard workout. And the next day you wake up and your heart rate is 65. That's telling you something. If it's not at your baseline, it's 5 or 10 beats elevated over its normal levels. And let's say you have a really hard workout. You have a competition plan for that day. Maybe you want to back it down a notch. Not race as hard or not do as hard a workout. Because and why would the heart rate be higher when you're not recovered? Higher heart rate means the heart didn't do its job. It's... It's just that the body is not recovered. And so we talked about efficiency earlier on, about the idea that the heart is more efficient. Well, it needs to work harder when the body is in recovery because the recovery is an active process. And so the idea being that if your body's not fully recovered, it's not at steady state, at the low level, which is like, ah, okay. I think about it now like a construction project. You know, you're doing repair, remodeling the body. And so you're working harder, but when the project's done, the workers can kind of lay down and go, oh, good, the job's over. And so everything goes down to steady state and dissolves the parasympathetics and a resting phase, essentially. That's all I it see. is. So, so similarly, then, if maybe you're catching a cold and your body's already fighting it, you just, you know, you just don't have a runny nose yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you'll see it in your heart rate. Your heart rate yeah. will be up. elevated. So what's the next metric to measure recovery? Well, there's a new metric out there. It's called heart rate variability, and this is much more technical, and it measures more than just the heart rate, and which is overall systems, because a lot of people don't understand, they think, you know, the variability of the heart, you know, what it means is that, let's say your heart beats at 60 beats per minute, right? That means that there's a beat, what's called the R, where the beat is actually, and there's a, there's a gap, and there's a beat, and a gap, and a beat, and a gap. Well, the variability is the time between beats, and it's measured in milliseconds. And so really what it is, is that a very regular heart rate you would think is a good thing, but in actuality, that's a bad thing. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Regular heartbeat. Now, I have to think about this from the perspective of atrial fib, because an irregular heartbeat is a bad thing. But in actuality, what it means is that your heart is intimately fine-tuned to the autonomic nervous system. What this means is that your autonomic nervous system can control the heart rate very quickly, and it's very, it's very responsive to the nervous system. So when you're under stress, it activates the catecholamines and increases heart rate. And then when you have to calm down, it activates the parasympathetics and it turns down the heart rate. And so what's happening is that the heartbeat changes, the the interval between heartbeats changes as heart rate variability. So one of the features now of measuring your score is that um, my watch will track my my heart rate variability, my Apple watch, which is kind of nice. And it tells me what my range has been for the week. I can see throughout the week how it changes based upon my workouts. And on those days when I have harder workouts, it's actually a lower variability. And when I have, when I'm more recovered, it's a higher variability. It's the opposite of what you would think. 
So what it is is that it's really tracking your autonomic nervous system. That's really what it's tracking. It's not the variable is an indicator of what's happening, and that's, that, that covers everything. You know, because remember, um, recovery is all about the immune system and about the nervous system and about the endocrine system and about the muscles and the cardiovascular system. And now you have a way to track your nervous, the nervous system side, the, the neurological side of recovery, which is the heart rate variability. So it's a new thing. Like I said, um, the Apple Watch does it automatically. I'm sure a lot of the fitness watches track it. If it can, if it can track heart rate, it can track um, heart rate variability. And why do you want to track heart rate variability for assessing your recovery status? Because high variability means your heart rate, you're, you're better recovered. That's all it means. So the more variable your heart is, the more the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems can interact with your heart and move it up or down as necessary. The more responsible okay. the heart is. So what it says is when we're looking at it. It seems backwards. So you've got to figure out mm -hmm. your baseline of what's your normal variability mm -hmm. when you're rested and recovered exactly and then you can see what's my variability today mm -hmm. when i think i'm rested and recovered and if it's not the same mm -hmm. uh, and in particular if it's lower then i'm not exactly recovered exactly yeah that's all it is okay so that's a that seems like a good trick i'm just pulling my heart rate data up here it is my heart rate data so it's showing my um for every day it shows my range of my heart rate variability 69 because I can actually see from this chart looking at these numbers when I had a hard workout it was much lower it's very clear by looking at these numbers every day it gives me a, a range for my heart rate variability and so it's a I can quickly look at this and scan and say oh well no wonder that ride went well my heart rate was very high my, my variability was very high means I was well recovered and I can even yeah. see from a hard workout how every day my heart rate variability goes up the average goes up every day and that's the metric. I don't even pay attention. I just, I just popped up my phone under health, and there it is right there in front of me because my watch tells me everything like this. Well, that's convenient rather than having to do the calculations manually. Yeah, and it tells time too. Okay, Glenn. Well, that has been a lot of very useful information. Uh, I've identified a few mistakes I'm making, and I'm going to have to take corrective action. Is there anything else that you would like to talk to people about? Well, we have a lot to talk about, Joe. we got a lot of stuff. So I think that, you know, We've covered quite a lot here about recovery faster. Like the, the bottom line is really simple. Healthy body, healthy athlete, healthy recovery. And you think about what keeps you healthy is what you eat, the metrics of your exercise program itself, um, the tools you use pre-recovery, the tools you use post-recovery, all these things allow you to recover faster. And we can deep dive on many of these. There's so many topics we can do deep dives on here because they go into great depth. There's a lot of controversy in some areas too. So I think yeah. these are things, topics of the future we cover, which will go into great depth. If there's nothing else then, Glenn, I'll say thank you once again. This has been fun and we will wrap up here and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to episode three, where Glenn and I took a deeper dive into the discussion of recovery and how to recover faster. If you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Glenn and I will be back soon with another episode for Wise Athletes.